This is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Piccini. everyone, Giovanni Piccini here, your host of the GP Soccer Podcast. Welcome, welcome to my global audience, uh, as I like to say, north, south, east, west, everyone in the middle as well. Welcome, welcome. Um, this is a bittersweet, this is a bittersweet episode, uh, as is the case with every uh, season finale. Uh, this is the final episode of season eight here on the GP Soccer Podcast, and it's bittersweet because, well, heck... It's the final episode of this season, and sweet in the sense that when I look back, and I do, I look back at every season upon its conclusion, and this is no different. When I look back, um, very pleased, very proud of the of the shows that I put out there for for all of you, my wonderful listeners. I'm I'm very proud of the content that I was able to put out. Uh, I know that uh, given the feedback that I get with great regularity, that uh, my listening audience really enjoyed. Uh, the number of uh, interviews I had and some of the topics that we hit, uh, it, it makes me feel great. And I, and I appreciate uh, all of the feedback that I get. I'm particularly proud of the two-part series on violence in youth sports. Uh, if you have not heard those two episodes, heck, I'll include three. The episode before those two was bad behavior uh, in youth sports. I certainly encourage all of you to, to, to check out those three, if not all of uh, all of season eight. Uh, as you know, if you're a regular listener of any podcast, uh, this one included, obviously, you can get all of my shows, all of GP Soccer podcasts from season one through season eight, wherever you download your podcast. So if you missed any episodes this season, or if you're new to the show and you want to play a little bit of catch up, or you want to just binge uh, over your, your favorite cocktail or a cup of coffee or whatever, uh, you can do so uh, from season one to season eight. Uh, you can find me pretty much everywhere. Uh, and again, we're going to be kicking off uh, on September the 6th. Uh, will be the kickoff of season nine. Uh, we take a couple of months off. Uh, and during that off season, I'm not uh, sitting on the beach, uh, you know, getting, getting a tan and having a cocktail. Well, maybe every once in a while. But uh, for the most part, uh, I'm, I'm looking back at the season just concluded, in this case, season eight. I look back at the show in its entirety, believe it or not, going back to season one. And I try to make the show better. I try to add improvements, um, maybe revamp the show. But it goes through, the, goes through the ringer, so to speak, so that when I come back on the air the next season, you know, the product, if you will, is that much better. It's that much uh, uh, more improved, if you will. And listen, folks, your input is super important to me in this regard. Uh, you can email me, gp4soccer, and that's the number four, at yahoo.com. If you've got input, you've got suggestions, advice, both good and bad, both good and bad, please share with me. Because at the end of the day, folks, this show is for you, you, my listening audience. As I always say, uh, I try to make all of these shows mini coaching education courses, uh, that at the end of each uh, show that you listen to, you're 
you're that much more enlightened. You're a little smarter. You know a little bit more about the game, whether you're a coach, you're a fan. Um, so, you know, your feedback uh, is very important because, in essence, this show does belong to you. Uh, I'm not going away, you know, for, uh, you know, throughout the course of the summer where you, where you won't hear me. As you all know by now, I host another terrific soccer show here in the Boston area on WMEX AM 1510 and streaming at WMEXBoston.com. show is called Direct Kick, and I'm on every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 if you want to catch the show then. But if you miss it, just like the podcast, you can go on WMEXBoston.com and you can click on the Direct Kick page and you can catch every single one of my shows uh, that are broadcast on WMEX. So I'm not really going away. Uh, I'm just going away a little bit in terms of managing the GP Soccer Podcast. There's lots of great soccer for me to cover this summer, uh, not the least of which is the Women's World Cup. Uh, that'll be kicking off uh, CONCACAF Gold Cup, uh, European Qualifications, Major League Soccer, NWSL. Uh, you'll get my, all of my commentary, my interviews on those areas, as well as others on Direct Kick. Again, WMEX AM 1510 streaming, WMEXBoston.com. Now, today's show is a bit of a look back. Uh, we'll be looking back at some of the highlights that occurred in the soccer world during season eight. And I have invited my very good friend and colleague, Rob Ellis, uh, to come on today. And we're going to chat about a number of things that have taken place in the soccer world over, the, over that, that period of time. As you all know by now, Rob is a terrific contributor to the GP Soccer Podcast with his uh, weekly English Premier League and European Soccer Report. And uh, he and I will be chatting up a storm, uh, as is always the case with Rob and I, about uh, some of the great things that have happened uh, in the world of soccer throughout the course of Season 8 and beyond. So there you, there you have it, folks. Uh, again, bittersweet. Bittersweet. Uh, but for every ending, there is yet a new beginning to look forward to down the road. And uh, September 6th will be the kickoff of Season 9. Season 9. I can't believe it. Uh, it's been almost four years since I've been doing the show, and uh, yet here we are. Uh, and then the offshoot of that, again, is the show here in Boston on WMEX Direct Kick. It's all its all good, folks. It's all good. I'm having a boatload of fun behind this microphone. So we're going to break for a commercial message. On the other side, uh, Rob Ellis and I will be hoisting a virtual pint or a virtual glass of vino. I haven't decided yet. And we'll have a, a conversation about all things soccer that has taken place over the course of Season 8. Giovanni Piccini here, GP Soccer Podcast. Don't you dare go anywhere cancer. We all know someone whose life has been impacted by this deadly disease. A friend, a colleague, a family member, someone in your community. No one is immune from it. But as each day passes, the fight continues to find a cure that one day will eradicate cancer from all our lives. One of the ways you can join the fight is through Red Card Cancer. Its mission is a call to action to help defeat the world's biggest opponent by uniting the global game of soccer in the fight against cancer. Together with the American Cancer Society, the soccer community is raising money and awareness for cancer research. If you or your soccer organization would like to support the American Cancer Society and Red Card Cancer, head over to redcardcanceracs.org as well as redcardcancer.org. Red Card Cancer, where a cure is our goal. Can't get enough soccer here in the GP Soccer Podcast? 
Would you like to hear a different twist on the game and still enjoy some terrific interviews, news, and analysis? Well, you can find Giovanni Puccini on his new show, Direct Kick, on WMEX AM 1510 every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Catch the show live on your radio or streaming on WMEXBoston.com. So tune in to Direct Kick with host Giovanni Puccini on WMEX AM 1510, Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Hi, this is Bill Steffen from Wingate University in the United Soccer Coaches. You're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with host Giovanni Puccini. And welcome back to the GP Soccer Podcast. Giovanni Puccini here, your host. You know, as I noted to you in the opening segment, a, a, a bittersweet episode. Every final episode of a season is a bit bittersweet. Uh, it's always very satisfying to know that you completed a, a nice series of shows. Shows, and uh, this particular season, season eight, was no different. And uh, but you know, the, the the bitter part is, you know, we're off for a little bit. Uh, we'll be uh, coming back on the air, so to speak, with the GP Soccer Podcast on September the sixth. And as I noted to you as well, always worth reminding that you can still catch me with regularity every Tuesday night from six to seven p.m. on WMEX in Boston with my Direct Kick program. Uh, you can get every single episode by getting uh, by uh, sh- streaming mechanisms, WMEXBoston.com. So as I noted to you in the opening, our good friend, my good friend, Rob Ellis is, is here uh, in this second segment of the GP Soccer Podcast. You know Rob really well for his weekly English Premier League and European reports, of which are very, very well received, does a great job. And Rob and I are going to take a moment. Uh, we're in a, a, a quasi-virtual pub hoisting a pint, and we're going to talk about all things soccer, all things football, and a little bit of a look back. Uh, so, Rob, my good friend, with all that said, welcome. Welcome back to the GP Soccer Podcast. Pleasure to, pleasure to be here, mate. Always great to speak to you. Shame it's not a real pint. Um, but just one thing, Giovanni, when you sure, emailed sure. me about this uh, wrapping up, the the final the final show i just suddenly had this bizarre thought you described it as a smorgasbord <laughs> and i've gone through my whole life and i don't know what a smorgasbord is really yeah i do uh, some shows that are called the the soccer smorgasbord uh i i it sounds I believe, scandinavian it is scandinavian it's swedish right, there you go. Okay. and essentially uh and my culinary experts out there in, in soccer land correct me if i'm wrong but it's it's just a um it's just a collection of different types of foods it's almost like a ah. i'm gonna get all french on you now rob charcuterie right where you have a display right. of cheeses and, and cold cuts and salamis and olives and it's just a a various collection of different types of food and the Scandinavians just call it a smorgasbord. Here in the United States, um, there are some restaurants that have a smorgasbord, and you go in, and it's just a, a bottomless pit of different types of food, and you eat right. to your heart's content. So, uh, uh, I got you. So for morons like me, it's a buffet. It's a buffet, <laughs> yes. It's a buffet of sorts. Right. I, I think in the got future, the soccer buffet. Yeah. I think we might I be feel, I feel I feel educated now. I feel I feel cleansed and ready to go. Well, you learned about smorgasbord and charcuterie. I just like saying charcuterie. It sounds very, very, uh, it is French, but it's very, very, uh, uh very, in, in a culinary fashion, very noble, if you will, something very fancy, but nonetheless. So it's always great to have you here. Uh, I, I've got a, a number of things I want us to chat about in, in this kind of look back portion of the GP Soccer podcast. Let's start, and this is in no particular order of importance, by the way. Let's start with Man City. My goodness, how can you not start with Manchester City? 
having won the treble, um, arguably, arguably the, the, the finest, um, you know, best club on the entire planet. From your perspective on that side of the pond, what was the reaction? What was the feeling, particularly amongst those who are maybe not be Man City fans, about Manchester City in general, their run, uh, you know, to, to, to wrap up the treble, um, and the future going forward? Are they still going to be Man City as we now know them next year? Um, I mean, yeah, as you say, when you when you were talking there about, you know, people who are not on the Man City, you know, bandwagon, not Man City fans. I mean, you know, I've probably told your viewers enough times, and that's probably why half of them can't stand me. Uh, I'm an Arsenal fan. And so the pain of it and the, the, the spectating of them catching Arsenal, and it got to a point where I just knew what was happening. Arsenal were like the rabbit in the headlights and you could see it. You know, I, I've seen it. I've seen it with Arsenal before and there was a feeling of, such power from Man City. There was an air of inevitability. They won 13 league games in a row. And once they hit a spell, I just remember thinking they are not going to lose in any competition. And, you know, it was, it was an astounding achievement. You know, the, I think, I think you mentioned it. I think they are the best clubs side in the world. I think they have to be. You look at the financial resources. You look at the players, you look at the manager, you look at the coaching staff, you look at how long they've been playing together. I think they are the best team in the world. And I, I think it's a surprise it took them so long to win the Champions League. But I think the bad news for everyone else is I think winning the Champions League doesn't mean Guardiola is more likely to leave. I think he's now more likely to stay because he's always said he doesn't want to be like Ferguson managing into his 70s or Wenger. He wants to go early, but he is obsessed with winning. And I think the more he wins, the hungrier he is. And I guess when he looks around at the moment, what other team in the world would offer more? Um, PSG, I'm not sure that's a particularly appealing job. Bayern Munich, he's done that. He's, he's done Barcelona. International management, I, I think there's not enough. It's too much downtime for him. So I think that is more likely to keep him. And I think they will be stronger next year. I think, scarily, I think they're going to be stronger. Um, one of the things I noticed, Yvonne, he ch he's changed the way they play a little bit. I got so used to City playing 4-2-3-1. And I mentioned on one of my Euro roundups, they flipped it to a 3-4-2-1. And that was all when Cancelo went. If you look at Man City's squad, one thing they're quite light on is fullbacks. But he doesn't really use fullbacks now. He's got three centre-halves. And then four midfielders. And those wide midfielders are not full, they're not wing backs. He's playing Bernardo, who can't really defend. And he's playing Grealish, who can't really defend. So he's got three centre backs who do the job, which gives him an extra player higher up the pitch, which is why they completely dominate teams. And, you know, it was just, it was painful. It was painful. And, you know, we could talk about whose treble was better, United, in 99 or cities now. Obviously, it's all relative to the time. But this is, I hope this doesn't sound like sour grapes. And people are obviously going to say it does sound like sour grapes. There is a bit of a cloud lurking with the financial investigation. I've got to be honest, Giovanni, I struggle to understand what uh, financial fair play is because 
some teams seem to get penalised for things that you kind of think, I wasn't even aware they were spending a lot of money. And some teams seem to spend and spend and spend and spend, almost without regulation. And obviously big teams have more money. The richer the owner, the more you spend. But I do think there is a slight feeling, particularly amongst Man United fans, that would this have been possible without money? Now, you could say, would United's treble in 99 have been possible without money? However, I do think there's an argument there, which is Manchester United are coming from a history of success over eras. Same with Liverpool, same with Arsenal to a degree. You know, 20 years ago, City were in League One. And I'm not saying money did everything. Of course it did. They recruited well. There are teams who squander money. PSG are squandering money. doesn't always work. But I do think in some quarters amongst fans, there are some people who look at it and think they are without doubt the best team in the world. But I think there is a but, which is, but are Newcastle going to do this? And if Newcastle can do this, is it down to coaching and youth development? Or is it down to how big your pockets are? And where does that take us as sports people? You know, is is that what we want? It's like, you know, you buy a club, you're rich enough. In 10 years' time, you're the champions of England. I don't know. Is that? I don't know where we're going. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you, you say that. Having watched, um, you know, reports from Sky, Sky News um, over in the UK, this very issue has has uh, come up uh, from mm. a number of pundits and commentators, this idea of sport versus business or business versus sport. And the stark reality is, I think, not, and we're not just talking about football, you know, uh, or soccer. Heck, you could just say professional sports, um, you know, yeah. around the world. We, we're experiencing here in the United States of America with, our, with the major league sports we have here. Um, the, the word or the amount of money uh, in the billions now is is spoken about with great regularity, not just millions, mm. billions. And you're seeing a lot of, you know, Saudi money being yeah. flooded into the football market. Um, and, you know, uh, Man City is, is, is no different. Um, yeah. And when you can flood a market as an owner with billions of dollars, uh, it gives you it gives you, you know, a, a distinct advantage over those who can't pump in billions of dollars. Uh, I forget. I might have been Jamie Carragher. I forget who made this this statement. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. Um, I think he used the word boring. It makes the game boring when you have a Man City, let's say, mm. that has so much money and can just run roughshod over all opponents and, and win a treble. Mm. Does that not or has that not gotten boring versus having some, you know, some some equality amongst those who are playing, say, in the English Premier League or throughout football, for that matter? Um, yeah. I, I think that's a that's a sound argument one could make. What do yeah, you think? No, completely. But the thing is, Giovanni, you know, as with not just sport, but in, in life, if you want to get the answers, I think you have to take people out of comfort zone and, and look at reality, which is, you know, we're talking about. We're talk I mentioned earlier financial fair play. I think it's one thing or the other. If you are letting people with literally um, bottomless pit of money take over the teams, okay, and they have they have money that is unimaginable, what is the point of then trying to restrict the use of that money? I, I look at it as a little bit kind of, that's a little bit tokenism. 
you know, you've got these billionaires who can literally buy every player in the world. But you're sort of saying you can do that to a degree, but we're we're not going to. And then, it, you know, if you look at we've got a transfer saga at the moment. Again, this affects Arsenal and City. Arguably the two best teams in the country at the moment. Declan Rice. Sounds Rice is a Londoner, fancies Arsenal, likes Arteta, gets on well with Saka, would play a lot more games at Arsenal, etc., etc., etc. Arsenal will make a first offer, refused. Second offer, refused. Man City have put an offer in today. Now, I am, this might be me worrying again. I think Rice will end up at Man City. Does he want to? I, I don't even think that matters because West Ham will say, well, if Man City are going to pay us 150 million, it doesn't matter what Rice wants to do. And so Man City gets stronger again next year. The gap gets bigger. The only way we can deal, we can deal with this, Giovanni, in my opinion, is, and people may not like it. It might sound like something from the dark ages, but the only way to do it is you must have, there's someone buys a club. There is a limit to how much they can pump in and you cannot, it's not bottomless. So that's the same. You might have a rich owner. But they can only put in 50 million a year, 100, whatever, whatever figure you want to use, low, high, everyone sticks that. Secondly, player wages. The, the, the wages are all in line with the transfer fee. So if you're paying players 500,000 pounds a week, again, if you cap it and you can't pay more than that, that then has an effect on the fee you're paying. And, you know, and, and also, unless you're going to make these steps, unless you're going to take, and also transfer fees. You know, if there was a maximum of 50 million, West Ham in this case would say, well, Arsenal will bid 50, obviously City will bid 50. What does Rice want to do? And if Rice fancies Arsenal, well, then next year, maybe Arsenal win the Premier League. But it's irrelevant because, because you don't cap it. Arsenal say 110, City say 120. Arsenal will stop there. Where does he go? Man City. And it just becomes to a point where it's either, you either do things properly. Or don't talk about financial fair play. How is it fair play that you can buy a team and in 10 years' time they're the champions of Europe? I'm not sure that's, whether you like it, I'm not, I'm not, this is not sour grapes. I'm just talking generally. Is that fair when you're talking about coaches, coach education, youth systems? They cannot compete with foreign overseas money. You know, you're talking about fair play. I think there's a little bit kind of, Two-faced. I think there's two two arguments going on at the same time. If you want the answers, put the policies in place. If you don't want the answers, just make it an open field and accept that's what it is. I think people would probably respect that a bit more, which is, like, well, it's a, it's a bun fight now. So basically, we need to try and get the richest man in the world to run out of it. And I think there's a lot of hypocrisy running through this argument. Unless you really want to get out of your comfort zone, and players, clubs, managers have to look at sensible salaries, sensible transfers in line with the rest of the world. People say, yeah, but it's a bubble. Yeah, but if you're not in line with the rest of the world, you're going to have bizarre concepts and bizarre results. And football is, I'm sorry, football is part of the world. You know, it's, we are coaches, they're players, they're people. You can't just have, oh, it's football, it's different rules. It's enter I know it's entertainment. That's why we're involved in it. But if you don't have some attempt to make it a real world thing, I think it becomes almost, you know, to a point where people kind of lose, lose grasp of what, what the hell is going on. Yeah. You know, your, your point, uh, relative to 
you know, doing it you know, through, through, through development, you know, having a, a good grassroots program, having a good academy program and having good developmental coaches coming in and, and, and uh, you know, developing the next great group of players who will drive your first team. That's, that's, that's all, you know, trounced. That's all negated by the team that has the billionaire who in one yeah. fell swoop can go out and buy the best players in the world and the best coach in the world. And they end up winning. It's, it's, it's very difficult to find some type of compromise, if you will, with the, the first example being, you know, doing it via, do, via development and then versus, you know, uh, the billionaire. We learned that lesson here in the United States um, a number of years ago when we had the North American Soccer League, when Pelé came to the United States and played for the New York Cosmos. Uh, the mm-hmm. New York Cosmos, uh, owned, I believe at the time by Time Warner, and the word billions was not even part of the, you know, the, the equation. It was millions. It was many millions of dollars. They put together the, arguably, it was one of the best teams in the world with Pelé and Giorgio Quinali and Franz Beckenbauer and Johan Cruyff, um, among among many others. Mm. And the rest of the North American Soccer League tried to play catch up by pumping dollars into their respective <laughs> franchises. And it didn't work. Because mm. there wasn't a fan base there, you didn't have the you know the the, the 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 media coverage as it did, and the North American Soccer League folded, which will never happen in the English Premier League. That's not what I'm saying. The lessons aren't here. Well, now with Major League Soccer, they learned those lessons of the North American Soccer League and said from the very beginning, back in 1996, I believe when the league first started, hey, you know what? This has to be a single entity. We have to manage all of this, everything. Everything, mm-hmm. salaries, you know, what it costs to, to, to buy a franchise and uh, all those types of things so that we don't become a second North American soccer league. Now, they came mm-hmm. awful close. Mm-hmm. They came awful close, Major League Soccer, to shutting its doors. It didn't happen, thankfully. And now it's it's one of the more, more vibrant, one of the most vibrant leagues in the world. It's not Serie A. It's not the English Premier League. It's not the Bundesliga. But it is mm-hmm. a viable quality level of football yeah, here in the United States. And we've learned those lessons of the very things you and I are talking about now that's happening, you know, in, in international football, mm. you know, billionaires being able to do what they do and leaving others out, so to speak, because they don't have the billions to pump into their infrastructure to particularly with, with, with getting players and in the transfer market to get great players. Yeah, no, you're right, Giovanni. I mean, I know just just before we move on, but what you're saying there is you're talking about youth development. I think all fans ultimately would like to make it about players and coaches again. How good is your manager? Not how rich is your owner? How good is your youth academy? Not again, how rich is your owner? And what's interesting, I know we might talk about the EPL ups and downs of relegation. One of the teams who's gone down this year, Southampton, produced Luke Shaw, James Ward-Prowse, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Walcott, Bale, the list goes on. Eventually, eventually, those players get picked off. Southampton have gone down. At the moment, Brighton are all the rage. They are getting in players in, producing all sorts. Now, any Brighton fans out there, please forgive me. Their team is fantastic. However, I will say this. Fast forward five years, there's no guarantee Brighton are in the Premier League. Some people might think he's talking nonsense because next year they could be in the Champions League. I know they could, but... When it comes to finances, as those players get picked off, McAllister's just gone to Liverpool. If Caicedo goes to gradually in four or five years' time, unless they find gems year after year after year, they can find themselves in a situation. And so it's not about players and coaches as much as, as it should be, because they will get picked off by the cities and so on and so on. And then we have good teams going down. 
So you touched upon relegation and promotions. Good, a good segue here to shift gears a little bit. Uh, we saw Leicester City, who not so long ago, mm-hmm. you know, uh, were English Premier League champions. Uh, yep. Leeds, you know, going down. Uh, and Southampton was a foregone conclusion, my goodness, you know, a, a while back. Uh, and going up, Burnley, Sheffield United and, and Luton going up uh, to the EPL. Let's start with those who are relegated. Uh, your thoughts on, on Leicester? Leeds I'm particularly interested in because, you know, Jesse Marsh was there for a brief period of time, an American coach, and he didn't last very long. And again, uh, Southampton, I think, was they just didn't just didn't uh, you know, have what it took to stay there. So your thoughts on those teams going down? Yeah, well, I mean, Southampton looked about January time. They looked dead and they, you know, they flatlined. They didn't ever really look like getting out of it. And this, this, those teams who are relegated, they're going to lead me on to one sort of point in summary. So Southampton sacked Ralph Hasenhutu, who had, had got some, in my opinion, had done well. He's been linked to some bigger jobs, but they sacked him and they got, uh, Ruben Telez in. They went down. Um, Leeds, 19th place. Big club, huge club. Uh, they had Bielsa, but this year sacked Jesse Mark. Then they sacked Javi Gracia and they got Big Sam in for the last four games. They went down. Leicester, in my opinion, mega talented squad. I have no idea how they went down. No idea how that's happened. Rogers, who I think is an outstanding coach. I really like Brendan Rogers. Whether he was pushed or was by mutual consent, but he went about February, March. They went down. The teams who I had been tipping, much little do I know, to go down, Bournemouth and Forest, kept their managers, Gary O'Neill at Bournemouth, Steve Cooper at Forest, and they survived. So the, the, the gamble didn't pay off for any of those teams who were relegated. Things got worse. I really didn't think Bournemouth had the squad to do it. They were comfortable in the Emble. Forest, I thought they were dead and buried at Christmas. In the end, they were relatively comfortable and again it just it just shows you the sacking of the manager i know they say there's a there's a bounce i don't think that i think more often than not there's not a bounce i mean did everton really bounce under dice or was it the same it's about the same Mm. and so my my view on it was the teams who twisted fell flat on their face the teams who stuck by their managers survived yeah you know changing managers or changing a coach in any sport, you know, there is that that moment of of uh, not moment, but there's that that time period of of adjustment. Mm. The players to the new manager, the manager to the players, and you're right. Sometimes it's you know it, you can get a bump. This the guy comes in and maybe maybe he's a rah rah guy, and he just he just needed to pump the, the the troops up, or maybe it's a different voice saying the same things that they heard in the past. I don't know, but I'm of the opinion that continuity continuity in terms of management is 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 important to have that that steadying hand overseeing the overseeing the the team uh, you know as it battles for relegation or promotion um i think it all boils down to impatience ownership impatience you know we're just not patient well let's this guy didn't work out well let's get this guy he didn't work out well let's get this guy um and in that ownership impatience they do a disservice to the manager and they do a disservice to the team um and, and he went up, well, heck, more often than not, getting relegated. Mm. Uh, now, on the flip side, we have we have Burnley, Sheffield United, and Luton going up. Your yeah. thoughts on those three teams and they're uh, getting back up to the, uh, the to the big time, so to speak. 
Well, Burnley romped it. I mean, from from day one, it they just looked. And, and what was amazing, Giovanni? Again, you know, uh, I think Sean Dyche is a is a very good manager. I, I do. I, you know, I'll, I'll say that. Um, his, you know, his style is. There's nothing wrong with his style. People say, "Oh, I don't like that style of football." You know, if any kind of football that's played well, you you have to respect. And Dyche, um He's a very good manager, in my opinion. I would never criticise the way any team, any team plays. It's, that's that's down to the coach. But company's style of play is clearly very different to Dyche. So if you look at you know uh, Burnley's Dyche, it was four four two. It was kind of Ashley Barnes up front, big man up front, small man playing off him. A lot of set pieces, a lot of direct stuff. Over the course of a pre-season, with player recruitment and keeping a few of Dyche's men in it, the way. Burnley played this season was night and day. And so to change the style of play and get those results is clearly something very good going on with company. Maybe another Guardiola disciple in the Arteta mould, who knows? Sheffield United are a bit of a yo-yo team. I think they'll struggle. I think they know what to expect. I think they're solid. I think they have a fighting chance, but I think they're going to be in a dogfight. And that is just down to the quality or perhaps lack of quality of the squad. And Luton, that is a mind-blowing one. You know, 92, they got relegated from the top division. So basically 30 years ago. In 2013, they were still in the conference. So they went all the way down. And they were in the conference for five years. Five years. So, you know, in the space of nine years, they've gone from the conference back to the Premier League. And what is going to be so funny about watching Luton Town is seeing Kenilworth Road, their stadium, back on Sky. I mean, that stadium, if you've ever been there, is the biggest throwback. You go there and it's like watching football in 1971 again. It is just, when you're looking at what the, the, the super clubs have now. So Luton will be a complete wild card. I, I, I have no idea how they're going to adapt to it. This is not on my, my notes for our conversation. Um, what are the thoughts over there about Wrexham? I'm sure you're aware of the phenomenon that is Wrexham. Uh, yeah. Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney are, you know, two Hollywood movie stars pumping tons of dough uh, into little old Wrexham and resurrected the, this 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 club and to the point of, you know, they they were promoted. You know, they were promoted. Yeah. What's what's the thought over there? What's the perception of Wrexham um, and all and all this Hollywood hype, if you will, re- re- surrounding the, the 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 team. I think um, I think it's viewed quite positively because I think there's something a little bit uh, naive about the pair of them. You know, it, it's quite it's quite endearing. I mean, if they win the Premier League in five years' time, everyone's going to hate them and go, "Yeah, you know." These two rich American stars get out, you know, all this kind of stuff. But for the time being, you know, there's a kind of I think people are looking from afar and thinking, this is quite sweet. You know, Wrexham are a big club. You know, they, they, they seem to be in love with Wrexham. Wrexham's in love with them. And I think at the moment, it's kind of, you know, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a sprinkling of stardust about it. And I think people are enjoying it. But like anything, if you become too successful, people will probably flip it and start to think, you know, who are these cowboys, you know, getting involved in, um, in football? Um, but it just reminds me, Jim, I don't, I don't know in America. Did you used to have the magazine, Roy of the Rovers? I can't 
To my knowledge, no. To my knowledge. Well, listen, this is a very brief aside. It's a, it's a classic English kids football comic, a soccer comic. And Roy of the Rovers is, there was this, this guy, Roy Race. He was like the English version of Harry Kane, but Hollywood film star, good looks, beautiful wife. Roy Race was the, the footballer every boy wanted to be. And in the storyline, his club was eventually bought out by this ridiculous sort of syndicate of, you know, millionaires and sports people all around the world. And it's got that feeling about it, of this slightly surreal situation where this takeover of people who've got nothing to do with football have taken, taken over. And at the moment, it's quite endearing. It seems to have a certain innocence about it. So if you've got any, especially Brits listening to this, when they talk about Roy Race and Roy the Rovers, they might remember that storyline where they got took over by basically, you know, the most bizarre group of people. So at the moment, it's endearing. But as I say, if they win the Premier League, um, I doubt it will be so um, so happily received, shall we say. That's their goal. They're, that's their goal. That's their we'll goal. Stay, watch this space. Yeah. Watch the watch this space. We'll see. We'll see what all leads. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's been a fun story. I, I knew very little, if anything, about Wrexham until such time the television program. I don't know if it was broadcast over there, uh, but it's called Welcome to Wrexham. And yeah. you know, and I had read about that. These two Hollywood guys who I knew bought this club in in uh, in Wales, and there's the story about resurrecting it. And it was a very—you used the word endearing. That's a, a an absolutely spot-on word. It was, and it is a very mm. endearing story. Um, as you and I both know, football is part of the community fabric, whether it's Man City, or whether it's Wrexham, or whether yeah. it's you know fill in any team. It's part of your DNA. It's 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 uh, so to be able to resurrect the passion and the commitment of the community for this team by these two guys is it was a very endearing story. Uh, and and in my in my listening audience, if you haven't seen it, um, welcome to Wrexham. I'm sure it's still out there in streaming services, and, and definitely check it out. So, so let's shift gears. Uh, we'll get out of the uh, you know out of the EPL, so to speak, but still a little bit of a Euro- European flair here. Lionel Messi. Yeah. Messi is coming to the United States of America. He's on his way to uh, Miami, Florida, where yeah. the uh, the beautiful people reside uh, of <laughs> all walks of life. Uh, what What is the European perspective? Uh, as I like to say on your side of the pond, what is that? Uh, what are people saying about Lionel Messi uh, coming here to the United States of America? Uh, I think it, it looked like a very unhappy marriage at PSG. I think when he left Barcelona, I don't think he quite knew where to go. I think it was such a wrench for him to go. There was, there were so few teams that could afford him. I think he just, I think he kind of fell into the PSG Galacticos experiment. But I think very early, he probably thought, I'm not sure how much I'm enjoying this. He was expected to go there and win the Champions League. And the reality is they're not good enough. To win the Champions League, you know, you throw Messi, uh, Messi, Mbappe, and Neymar on the pitch and go, "Well, they're the three best strikers in the world. We're going to win the Champions League." PSG have been poor this year. You know, they 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 lost seven league games. Seven league defeats doesn't win you the title in many countries. You know, and I think with respect to the French league, it's not as strong as the EPL. I don't think it's as strong as the Spanish league or Serie A or the Bundesliga. And you know, they've lost seven games. And in Europe, they were wholly unconvincing. And it was the same last year. They won the league last year and they went out in the last 16. Same this year. 
for the amount of money they spent, that that's not particularly impressive. And I don't think Messi ever fully looked comfortable. I don't think he's played his best football there. I mean, I, I was looking at his stats earlier. I mean, to be fair to him, he's got 21 goals and 20 assists this season. That's hardly shabby. But I think he looked unhappy. And I think it's a relief that he's gone. I'm pleased he didn't go to Saudi Arabia. That's another, you know, topic of discussion. Um, I don't think Europe, there was anything else for him to achieve. So I think the MLS was probably a realistic destination. I think the demographic in Miami will lap him up big, you know, Latino, Hispanic community. So he'll be idolized. He'll be idolized there. But what I didn't realize was, and you know, I've paid a bit more interest. How poor into Miami are? Oh, they're, they're terrible. Yeah. They're terrible. So one that's going to be one of the worst clubs in MLS. I mean, what do you think, Jermaine? Well, I mean, obviously he's an incredible player, but I don't believe he can go there and turn, you, you know, there might be some magical form. But I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think he's going to go there and it's going to be a fairy tale? No. Uh, well, let me answer it a couple of different ways. I, I will. I will go back and by comparison, go back to the New York Cosmos back in the you know uh, early NASL days when Pelé came to the Cosmos. Um, the Cosmos knew, and and everyone knew th- this guy, despite being the best player in the world, cannot do it on his own. Subsequently, as we now know, we, he, they surrounded him with some of the world's greatest players. Some might have been a little past their prime. Many of whom were still in their prime. And they went on to create arguably one of the best teams, uh, clubs in the world, that being the New York Cosmos. I think Inter-Miami is going to be very similar. I think they're all very realistic that one man cannot carry an entire squad. There are, there are multiple rumors out there about bringing back some of his uh, you know, former teammates from Barcelona and, and the like mm. to come to Inter-Miami. This is but the first piece of the proverbial puzzle to building a modern-day New York Cosmos. So um, mm. this was just the first piece of the puzzle. From the people that I know, and I'm going to have a great guest on my my direct kick show next week, Thomas Rongan, uh, who was one of the commentators for for Inter Miami. Uh, he's going to give us some more in depth detail about what's going on. But in my opinion, this is one of the worst kept secrets out there. Um, you know, he did a little bit of a dance in Saudi Arabia. They offered him again. We'll use the B word: billions of dollars or a billion dollars to come. Um, and I guess he kind of had to go entertain them and and, and show some interest. But I uh, I heard people talking, and I say people people with you know. A good uh, good knowledge of the pulse of what's happening here in Major League Soccer that he was coming to Miami. They own a home. He, his family owns a home in Miami. Uh, his wife had a preference about going to Miami. And he wanted to to finish his career, yet still playing football, but in, in an environment that is not as, as uh, daunting, not as tense, not as uh pressure field as the case is when you're with PSG or you're with you know, with Barcelona and yet still play. And then, you know, there is there is the 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 thing about coming to the United States and contributing to the game here in our country. And we and we've seen a lot of players uh do that. David Beckham, who's arguably the driving force about bringing him back, bring him here to the United States, is one of those players that came here that arguably was still a bit in his prime when he when he came here to play in the US. And has stayed here and has invested literally and figuratively, uh, and I think uh, very obviously it was it has a was a very strong and guiding hand in, in hand in getting Lionel Messi here to Inter Miami. So there's a very long way of me saying, Rob, this could be a modern day New York Cosmos where Lionel Messi is the biggest piece of the puzzle, but he will not be the last piece of the puzzle. Um, you know that's 
and and to not to to not follow that that pattern or not follow that plan would be an injustice an mm. insult to mm. Lionel Messi to to bring this player of his magnitude and surround him with mediocre players um yeah. that that would be insulting insulting so I mean the own, I was looking at um Inter Miami's roster earlier and you know I I I I watch a bit of the MLS I I recognize some of the names in Miami squad some of the domestic players but if you're talking about your average European football fan, your average European fan, I would say looking at that squad, there's only one name they'd recognise, and that's DeAndre Yedlin. Yep. Beyond that, and I was looking at and I was thinking, wow. You know, obviously the MLS, but listen, it really annoys me when people look down their nose at the MLS. Because, you know, having played a reasonable standard of football, to to disrespect any professional footballer or league. You have no idea how good these guys are. So the people playing in the MLS are top level players, in my opinion. And so he's going into, um, you know, you know, a good, a good group of players, but I think he's that good. It's going to be a slightly strange experience for him. But Giovanni, again, I know I don't want to keep asking you the question, but it mm-hmm. just made me think, isn't it getting to a stage though, when you're talking about the MLS where, you know, they can certainly attract superstars. Post 30. I know when Beckham signed, he wasn't on his last legs, but you're talking about some of the English players. You've had Rooney, you've had Lampard, you've had Gerard. Um, you've got, you've got Messi now. Is it actually serving a purpose now in terms of developing the MLS brand? Because you know, you're going to get players 32, 30, you know, because the standard of football is good enough. Is it actually helping now? What what does Messi actually do that hasn't been done before? Or is it just, you, do you know what I mean? Is it really, really raising the standards now? But first, if you set up a league in a country where football is developing, you know, and you sign Lionel Messi, he takes you up two levels. But is it almost, you know, the MLS is almost doing itself a disservice by treating itself like, welcome, Leo, welcome. But it's like, should you be throwing in open arms to a player who, incredible, is past his best? He, he is. You know, I know he was amazing in the World Cup, but he is past his, his absolute prime. Is it really helping the long-term development, that approach? So the I won't to take out the, the term long-term. Uh, the answer is yes. Right. The model works. That right. model works. And I'll still harken back to, you know, the cosmos, albeit, you know, the, the other franchises couldn't do the same thing. Um, the model works when you bring in a high profile player, such as Lionel Messi to the United States of America. What happens is the, the casual soccer fan all of a sudden becomes a, 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 a tried and true fan. He's going to buy or she's going to buy tickets and, and, and merchandising. They're going to watch it on television. The casual sports fan who knows about Major League Soccer, he knows about soccer in this country, all of a sudden they become soccer fans. And it's a business model that's going to drive viewers. It's going to drive social media. It's going to drive the awareness of Major League Soccer. It will then become a more attractive league to maybe other players who may not be on on the tail end of their career um, to maybe consider Major League Soccer. from a business standpoint, from a bottom line standpoint, and let's not be naive here, sports is a is a business, mm. and if you're not and if you're not sustaining yourself financially uh, through the appropriate methods of, of of generating revenue, you cease to exist. 
a la North American Soccer League a number of years ago. So the, the answer, Rob, is an absolute yes, because the business model works. Mm. These mm. players also, and there may be an exception here there. I, I can think of a couple who come here. You know, it's a bit of a, a vacation for them. But for the most part, those who have come here have taken it seriously. And their presence, particularly on the training pitch, on the training field, that environment changes. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you've got a Lionel Messi that steps on the training field at Inter-Miami and all the players are looking around like, I better step up my game. I, I had better improve my ability to play this game because I'm on the same field with Inter-Miami. So does, does it affect the quality of play amongst the existing players? Sure. Sure. Mm. Uh, they mm. want to, they want to, you know, make sure they don't insult this guy, you know, by yeah. being a bad player. Mm. So the, all of the pluses outweigh any of the negatives. Any of the mm. negatives. Um, everything I hear on this side of the pond, everything I read, people I know that are in the league, it is an emphatic, big thumbs up um, that he comes here to the United States of America. And, uh, you know, games are sold out. Uh, good luck trying to find a ticket. Um, you know, t- you know, uh, television ratings are going to go through the roof. Social media presence is going to go through the roof. It's, it's, it's all good. And I'll circle back. I'll beat the dead horse. This is a sound business model that continues to work. So Giovanni, I know briefly before we move on, when and at what point do do you and how far down the line is it where you get Beckham, Gerard, Lampard, Rooney or Ibrahimovic, Messi, you're going to that level. When will you get them when they're 28 as opposed to 32? How far off is that? You know, let's say, for example, you know, someone like Declan Rice, you know, a guy at the peak of his game wanted all over Europe, looks at the MLS and thinks, I could go to City, I could go to Arsenal, but I'm going to go to the MLS. Do you think that is in the offing in the next 10 years? In the next 10 years? Possibly. I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. Um, but if things continue to go as they go, and that you know that means every facet of, of the league and in its operation, yeah, I think you're going to see um, within 10 years, the up and coming or the or the the uh, quality players you describe will then consider. And at the end of the day, here we go again. It all boils down to money. Will MLS be in a position to offer salaries to these players that you describe to come to the United States of America to play in MLS? So mm. the crystal ball remains a bit murky in the sense that what kind of revenue will be out there will be available to attract these types of players. And can it be done so that we don't you know, uh, fall back into the lessons learned from the old North American soccer league. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's very, it, the, the, the steps have to be, that, that are, are taken have to be very careful, very, 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 very careful uh, to do that. It's a very long way of me saying, yes, I believe in 10 years we'll be in that position. Um, and it all boils down to the proverbial almighty dollar. Uh, if we yeah. have that kind of money to, to, to bring those kind of players here, heck, you know, in a, in a broader answer, Rob, MLS is here to stay. MLS is here oh, to yeah. stay. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, you know, with that, at least in my lifetime, I've seen leagues come and go <laughs> and we have one that's, that's, uh, that is very strong. It's here to stay and it's, it's growing mm. and that type of thing. Um, you know, in terms of the that's big great. picture, it's awesome. It, it's yeah, terrific. That's great. You watch, you watch matches on television now. You go to a match. I'm here in New England. I go see the Revs play. It's good football. Now, is it, you yeah. know, is it Manchester City, Man United? No, but it's mm. good football. It's mm. good football, um, and the fans That's are great. great. Uh, it's it's great for the game here in the United States, yeah. and it has us talking. And, and I'll 
I'll extend the answer by saying, look at the number of American players that are leaving the United States to go play in Europe and are impacting Europe. Correct. Yeah. We have that level of player. Yeah. We have that level of players, plural, who are not only just going to Europe to play, but they're going to Europe to start and impact. Guys like Christian. Yeah. Wilson, yeah. 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 Weston yeah. McKinney, Weston McKinney, Serginio Dest. The list goes on and on. And, and that's one of the things that MLS provides these players. It's a proverbial stepping stone. Come develop, grow, maybe play a little MLS, raise your profile, go overseas. Um, and, and that's, that's a part of the American game that we're enjoying now to mm. see our players going to your side of the pond and impacting impacting which yeah. is a word you oh, could not use not that long ago yeah the first so. the first american who had an impact on me Jibon, before we move on roy wegley oh sure roy wegley i remember him qpr penalty taker i remember back then thinking wegley was a really good player he was the first american i remember making an impact went on to john hawks he did well but no you're yeah. right regular regularly now having a big impact top level yeah uh, in my lifetime, which I won't tell you how long my lifetime is, you know it is, but I'm not telling my audience. 25. In my lifetime, we've come, uh, we've we've come a long, long way. Let's uh, let's let's come to back to my side of the ocean here, the by side of the pond. Uh, the U.S. Men's National Team um, yeah. have just won the Concacaf Nations League. They uh, in the semifinal match. I don't know if you watched it all. It was a bit of a battle <laughs> with our arch rivals to the south, that being Mexico. U.S. winning three yeah. nil. It was a a collection of goal scored fights, cards, red cards, uh, rip shirts. Uh, it was nasty. Um, mm -hmm. And then the ultimate uh, final match against Canada, which the United States won two nil. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you have a chance to, to you know catch any wind of of of, um, of the Nations League and the, the U.S. performance uh, on your side of the pond? I saw a bit of uh, the U.S. Mexico, not just the fighting. Uh, <laughs> I did see some of the soccer as as well. Um, and I saw about 50% of the US, uh, against Canada. And part of the reason I wanted to watch some of that was because I was so impressed with Canada in the World Cup. I hadn't seen Canada play for a long time. And I know their results. I don't think they did them justice. There were some players who I thought, I thought, um, Davis is such a good player. Uh, is it Jonathan David? Uh, Jonathan David is a, a Buchanan. Who played here for the Revs for a little while? Another terrific Canadian player. And they've got—is uh, it Estacayo? Who plays centre mid? Mm -hmm. If there's any uh, Hispanic listeners, my pronunciation was horrendous, but is uh, in the in the World Cup was excellent in centre midfield. And I thought it would be—I um, thought it would be a close game. And I thought Canada were a bit, a little bit unlucky. Um, I thought. I think. I think. Listen. I think in the Concacaf uh, setup, I think the US are the strongest team. But I think there are a number of teams not too far off them. You're looking, obviously, Mexico are always good. Canada, I think, are not far off the States at the moment. And then you've got the supporting cast of the Central Americans, you know, Panama, Costa Rica, El Salvador are quite useful at the moment. Honduras are normally quite good. But I think the US were deserved winners. But I think, you know, I think in both games, um, I think they were better than Mexico. But I thought against Canada, it wasn't a totally... Uh, foregone conclusion. Um, but I, I like, I like the structure of it. I was looking at it earlier. So you've got, you've got three leagues, haven't you? And it's tiered. You've got, you know, your league, league A, B and C. And it's a really simple structure. And then, you know, US obviously top tier. You've got four groups and the group winners go through to the semi finals. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a really good, and it's a nice meritocracy. I like the relegation. It gives every fixture a meaning. It's the same with in Europe. You've got the UEFA nation. There's no dead. Like we used to dread it here. It's International Friendlies Week. Everyone would be like, oh, for God's sake, you know, we can't watch the Premier League now. And I think it, it adds a little bit to it. And I think, I think it, it raises the standard. I think it raises the standard. It's a good competition. I still think there are some teams in the top tier who are making the numbers up a little bit. You know, as it, you beat Grenada 5-0 in the yes, group stage. Yeah. Some of it's a little bit making the numbers up. But like, as you were saying, it's, it's about raising the standard and everything else beneath it. Yeah, I mean, what, what it, and you hit the nail right on the head there. You know, for for years, for generations, we we have play friendlies. You yeah. know, that was the that was a common fixture, if you will, in, in the international game. Now we have the Nations League, where you're still playing against other countries, but now you're playing for something, and it's turned out to be a terrific model, both in in Europe um, and obviously here here in the United States and in, within Concacaf. Um, we're now you're, you're playing internationally, but now you're, you know, there's there's uh, some incentive, if you will. You know, the the thing relative to the U.S. men's national team that I, that I noticed in particular was this group of, of players, um, and this is part of the maturation process. This is a group that predominantly came out of the World Cup, and we know we made it to the to the to the uh, second round and, and then fell to the Netherlands. This team came out with swagger. This team came out with uh, this is a family show, so I will, I'll, I'll keep the language clean with a bit of an attitude, a bit of an attitude, and it showed. And you know as well as I do that you're going to have the most talented group in the world. And when you're playing at the international level and you're playing for you know uh, regional tournaments or you're particularly playing in the World Cup, if you don't have a particular edge to your game, if your team does not have a particular edge to their collective personalities. Heck, all the best, you know, the best players in the world, you know, won't get you much. That was the one thing that I noticed, particularly against Mexico. They came out with an attitude uh, and mm. played terrific football. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was resulted in some red cards and yellow cards, ripped shirts, and that type of thing. But it exhibited a an attitude that we didn't maybe didn't see, say, in, in the World Cup, in the World Cup. And, and to my friends in Canada, I have some good friends in Canada. Um, they're doing some great work developmentally. Uh, from grassroots to, to the to the professional level to the international level, they got a terrific coach in John Herdman. Um, you know they're not quite there yet; um, right. they're still a bit behind. Uh, you know the United States in terms of infrastructure and player development and uh, you know, coaching licensure and, and that type of thing. But they're they're moving right along. They're moving moving right along. So I think Giovanni, as we were talking about, you're talking about you know they played with you know an attitude and a, a bit of a, a bit of a swagger. When we did your any of the listeners when we did our World Cup podcast, one of the things we kept talking about, and I think you might now have two options. I was so impressed with US overall. I put US in the same bracket. At the moment, it's kind of Japan, where you're bankers for the second round. And in the next two or three World Cups, there's a possibility that on a day, if you get a role going in the knockout stages, you're going relatively close. And I, again, I think, you know, Japan, US, two teams who are really seem to be doing well at the moment, who, if they believed a bit more, but I think it's not just belief. I think the thing US have been lacking and it was so evident that it was a striker. Now, Pepe. Yeah, Ricardo Pepe. Yep. Yeah. And also as a, again, as an Arsenal fan, he was an England junior Balogun. Now he took the French league by storm. How, how was he? How, I haven't seen him play for the U.S. Doing well, or I mean, oh yeah, he's. He, I think his best days are ahead of him. He is a welcome yeah. addition 
to uh, United States soccer, an absolute welcome addition to United States soccer. It's it helps to fill in that uh, proverbial gap, as you noted about the, the proverbial number nine or the capacity as a team to, to score goals. Uh, it gives us another player who, who can be dangerous going to goal and, and scoring goals. It's a wel- welcome, welcome addition uh, to, to uh, our national team. No question. Absolutely no question. So. So staying on the, on the men's national team, we, we discussed this. Uh, I say we, our World Cup panel, um, you know, last season. Greg Berhalter has yeah. been brought back as the head coach of the U.S. men's national team. Uh, you know, the, the story is out there. Everyone knows the story about Greg Berhalter and his relationship with Gio Reyna. And then by association, the relationship between Claudia Reyna and Danielle Reyna, Gio's parents, and, you know, them uh, complaining like, spoiled rotten youth soccer parents oh my kid isn't playing why isn't my kid playing and them pulling all kinds of strings because they have those particular strings to pull within u.s soccer uh and then some ugly things were brought up uh, by the by the rainers and you know it put a big black cloud over greg berhalter and there was an investigation of which he was cleared and then there was you know we, we were without a, a a sporting director and now we have matt crocker who was comes from southampton and, and this is a very, very long way of me saying over an extended period of time, we bring back the guy we had in the past, Greg Berhalter. Um, my, our, our good friend, Renato Capabianca, and I had a conversation actually before we went, we uh, hit the record button with you. He asked my opinion on all this. I was of the opinion that I would have bet several mortgages. Not that I have several mortgages, Rob. I, I've won. Uh, but I would have bet several mortgages that Greg Berhalter would not have been brought back because of this issue with the Reynas. I felt that it was too too much of a black cloud that uh, would have stayed and grown had Mr. Berhalter be brought back um, and something that U.S. soccer didn't need going forward. Mm. Secondly, because the United States is hosting along with Canada and Mexico, it was an opportunity to do something bold. Do something bold. The names like Jose Mourinho were thrown about, Pep Guardiola were thrown about, Jesse Marsh was thrown about a little bit there. Heck, here's the time we do something bold. We're going into a World Cup or we're, we're hosting with two other countries. Uh, we don't have to deal with the Burhalter issue. It, none of it happened. So I guess I lost my mortgages. I'll be homeless uh, <laughs> because of my predictions. But lo and behold, we have the good Mr. Burhalter back, uh, you know, uh, running things uh, as we go into the this 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 next World Cup cycle. Um, mm. From your perspective and conversations you have with your American buddies over here, what what are your what are your thoughts? Well, Johnny, I think they've made the right choice. I think, I think they made, I mean, listen, I'm, you know, obviously I'm based in England, but I'm going on what I saw in the World Cup. And if that is Bear Holter's team, if that's how they play, if that's the players he's working with, I think they're on, I think you're on the right path. I like the way they play. I don't think the US have a weak player. I, I think, you know, you've got some players that I really like Musa. I think Anthony Robinson is excellent. We all know about Pulisic, but from one to 11, Tim Ream has done so well from, there's not a weak player. And I think he's got them playing with more belief. And I think you're, you're onto a good thing. And if it comes down to an arm wrestle, I know Gio Reyna has been reintegrated into the team. I'm aware of that. The timing of that, just as Bearholter comes back is interesting. If it's an arm wrestle, in this particular case, I would go with Bearholter. I think you are going to get further down the line with a good coach 
who, okay, coaches fall out with players. It, the whole family dispute was a little bit school, you know, high school playground stuff. It got a bit ugly. But I think unless you are talking about Rayner as being one of the best players in the world who can carry the US on his shoulders, and I don't think you will do that, I think you have made the right decision with with Bearhalter. You know, yeah, there were all kinds of names. Patrick Vieira, Zidane. Jesse March, all these names being thrown about. But what's quite interesting, I was reading an article, a lot of the US players, they might think Berhalter's a bit of a, a tough nut, you know. But McKenney, Weir, Zimmerman and Yedlin all came out and backed him. And they didn't have to do that because they could quite easily have put the knife in. If they wanted rid of him then, player power could have got him out. And I think in the context of what was going on with all the family stuff, for them to speak out, I think probably tells you the majority are, are on side with him. And, you know, I know in within sports teams, not everyone's going to get on. And if a coach falls out of a player, I'm normally of the opinion, unless you are talking about the best player in the world, you back the coach if you believe you know, if you believe in that coach, again, you know, use the example of Arsenal, what Arteta did with Aubameyang, what he did with Guendouzi, what he did with Ozil. In every case, he he got stronger. The players got stronger, the fans got stronger, and you will not you will not cross Arteta now. If if Berhalter's got that in his character and he gets the results, then I think you're on to you know onto something special. And also, you know, you look at it, the people who were interim coaches, is it uh, B.J. Callahan, yes, and Anthony Hudson. They're bearholders men, aren't they? You know, they've been in the structure. And so the, you know, it was not World Cup standard, but you've just won the CONCACAF Nations with his understudies doing it. So there's obviously something running through it where he wasn't steering the ship, but you still won it. Now he's back. Listen, I think, I I quite like bearholders. I think he's good. I don't think many would have come in and done much better, but I know you don't necessarily agree with that, but you know, you know U.S. soccer a lot better than me. That's just my my perspective on it. Yeah, listen. You know, all kidding aside, uh, I wish him well. I, I I wish him well. I I want him to do well for all the obvious mm. nationalistic reasons. I want him to do well. Um, to your point about the U.S. doing something in terms of getting further, uh, you know, through the tournament in the World Cup. I agree with you. I think this could be the group, and it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of the, of the group. They have just come out of this this past World Cup, a group of young players who will be four years older, four years wiser, four years smarter, four years better uh, going down the line. And the current crop of U-20s, I watched with great interest at the, the last uh, the, the U-20 World Cup. Um, the U.S. U-20s lost to Uruguay 2-0 in the quarterfinals over two heartbreaking goals. Um, Uruguay went on to, to, to win the, you know, the, the, the uh, under-20 World Cup. I thought the U.S. was a better team on the day, uh, and I think they could have. I think they could have won a World Cup. There's some terrific, terrific, even younger players on that U20 squad that I think could be in some conversation relative to the formation of the team uh, going forward in 2026 for the for the World Cup here uh, in the United States. Um, listen, I, I wish Burhalter all. Believe me, I wish him all the best. All the best, mm. Rob. Let's let's wrap up um, the women's World Cup is uh, on the horizon. It starts up next month. Um, talk a little bit about England. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the the fan base, the following, the team as a whole. Um, what are the thoughts about um, the English side you know, heading into the Women's World Cup? 
Uh, a lot of optimism, you know, after they won, uh, when they won the Euros last summer. Um, you know, I think, I think there's always a feeling just in English sport in general of going close. We go close and lose. We go close and lose. And I think it was a, a quite a welcome surprise when, uh, the ladies team actually, they won it. They beat Germany in the final. And, you know, I mean, I've watched, the thing is, Giovanni, now, you know, in England, the women's Premier League is, is very visible, very visible. There's numerous women's highlight shows. There's live games. There's cup games. I think people who hadn't watched much women's, women's soccer here, you see it all, you see it all the time now. You know, I think Arsenal's ladies had 60,000 at the Emirates. They filled the Emirates Stadium for a league game. I mean, that's unthinkable. Uh, that's, that's crazy. And I think it's huge. It's, it's huge here now. You know, it's every year it's, it's becoming more and more on the radar. Uh, they've clearly got some very talented players, England. They've got some very, very talented players and a lot of long, um, long established players. I know people like Ellen White, the centre forward, have, have stepped down, but they've got players who've been together. Uh, a long time. And I think England do are in with a shout of winning it. Um, I know US ladies obviously are, are going to be very strong. Uh, Brazil will, will be useful as well. But I think England, I would, I would have them in the conversation, um, as, as potential winners, you know, because they've just come off the back of, of winning something. And that's so powerful in sport, you know, in life, you, you know, you can't do something till you've done it. The moment you do it, I think you can do it again and again and again. And I think this group of players, they've been together quite a long time, but then they're kind of at their peak. And I think it's a good time for them to, to go to the World Cup. They've got a really good coach. She, you know, she knows exactly what's, what's going on in English, in English women's football. And, you know, it's huge. It's huge here now. And, you know, every guy as well as women will be watching those games. Mm. You know, 10 years ago wouldn't have happened. Yeah. That is, uh, an amazing recent phenomenon to see. Yeah. And it's wonderful as, as, as a soccer person, as a football person, it's wonderful to see, you know, uh, major stadiums literally being filled up to watch, uh, to watch the women play professional soccer, international soccer. Um, you know, the U S is, you know, it's, it's there, it's an embarrassment of riches for the United States. Um, there, there are several players who will be down and out because of injury have not been called up, but there's enough younger players uh, still in their very early twenties. We're going to fill those roles. Uh, they'll bring back some seasoned veterans, folks like, you know, Alex Morgan, uh, Megan Rapino will be, will be back among in the squad. Uh, Christy Mewis, uh, will be making her debut at age 30. Uh, she's a local, local girl. Uh, her, her, her sister Samantha will, will not be on the team because of injury as well. Um, you know, we, the women's game here in the United States, as, as the world knows, um, has been a, a dominant force. And, uh, Coach Vlatko and Donovsky again has, uh, a, an extraordinary pool of players to choose from. Even when you have significant players going down due to injury, that you can bring in the next crop of players and can be dynamic and, and dangerous, um, and, and certainly play at the international level. And and certainly, um, they're probably still the odds on favor to win. However, yeah, right. however, the rest of the world is catching up, and in many cases, caught up. Have caught yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, gone are the days where the U.S. just shows up on the field and okay, we win. Those days are long over. Every match. Every match is a battle, and this particular World Cup is going to, um, you know, we'll we'll see that. So, 
So Rob Ellis, I finished three or four pints here. And in you and I yeah. chatting at virtual pints, virtual pints. I'm surprised I can I'm surprised I can still speak with you in any coherence, any coherence. You're the author of a terrific book, my friend. Share with my audience uh, you know, your 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 book. Yeah, thank you, Giovanni. It's the, the Soccer Coaches Toolkit. So there's more than 250. So it's well, 252 activities to educate, to inspire coaches and players. It is the ideal book for coaches at all levels of the game. You've got, uh, you can use it in your professional academies. You can use it with professional men's. You can use it in your non-league football. You can use it at your youth development centers. And you've, there's also sections where you can use it grassroots. It's a culmination of every activity I, I had used to that point in my career. It took me seven years. It's a huge book. If you are ever struggling, you suddenly think, right, I'm doing passing today. I'm doing pressing today. I'm doing counterattacking today. You will find a plethora of activities and they are all graded. So if you want to do counterattacking and you've got beginners, there's a beginners activity for counterattacking. If you want to do volleys, advanced players, there are advanced players. All you can, you can get so much stuff out of it. It's on sale, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Waterstones. It's, it's all online. It's been used and bought by professional players over here, professional coaches. If you go on Amazon, you'll see all the reviews. I think all but two are five stars. It was seven years of my life, you know, sitting in a darkened room, scribbling on pieces of paper. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that painful, but you know, obviously I'm going to say this, but it's very popular. And I think it is the book that you will never get tired of looking at. You're going to find something in there. If you want a fresh idea, let's have a look. It's in the long passing section. Bang. There it is. So I really recommend it. So anyone out there that wants a lifetime of activities, it's the Soccer Coaches Toolkit. And as Rob knows, um, you know, I've had a number of authors on my show here in the GP Soccer Podcast, and, and I I buy every one of the books of the authors that I interview for a couple of reasons. I want to support them. I want to su- support soccer people in their efforts to write books. And it's their welcome additions to my own library, which is which is rather vast. And and I don't say this because Rob is my friend. He's a great colleague. Um, this is one worth investing in. And there's a key word there, worth investing in. And again, whether you're 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 a coach or whether you're, you know, you're, you're part of a large organization, a town organization or a club, and you want to use this book as a resource or resources for all your coaches. It's, it is as, uh, Rob describes, uh, your, your, your go-to book. And I highly recommend it. Uh, I make no money off of this. So this is, you know, I'm not making any dough off of this. Um, that is just, uh, my very honest opinion of, uh, the soccer coaches tool book, uh, written by the terrific Rob Ellis. Uh, Mr. Ellis, we, we're, we're drawing season eight to a close. Uh, you and I will still be chatting as the summer goes on. I look forward to our re-engaging formally uh, in season nine, which kicks off on September the 6th. Uh, I want to make sure I say this publicly, and I mean this uh, from the bottom of my heart. You and I met uh, because you had written a book, and uh, your publisher came on, and I interviewed you on my show, my show here, and we we hit it off. We, we happened to connect, uh, and, and you and I have never met live. But I feel like, you know, I, uh, we're, we're, we're very close friends, colleagues. Uh, I, I have such respect for you as a professional. And it's always a joy. It really is a joy to have you have you on my show and chatting. And I really do look forward to the day where, indeed, whether we're here in the United States uh, having a, a glass of vino, being Italian, 
or uh, in England, having a pint in, in, in your local pub. I, I look forward to that day. Uh, so thank you very much for being part of not just the GP Soccer Podcast, but but my life personally and professionally. Uh, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. I was, I was getting a little bit overwhelmed there when you were, you were getting so slushy on me. I thought we were going <laughs> to utter those three words live on air, Giovanni. I was saying, you know, make sure. Sh- Make sure your wife's upstairs. I was wondering where this was, where this is all going. But no, feelings mutual, mate. It's been, um, it's been really nice connecting with you and it's been a real pleasure to be involved in, in this series. And, uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll chat more over the summer and whether it be in England over what do English people drink? About 15 pints of lager every night or a few glasses of wine in the civilization that is the United States of America. Either way, it's all good with me, mate. There we go. I look forward to that day. So uh, my guest, uh, friend, colleague has been Rob Ellis, uh, the terrific author of the Soccer Coach's Toolkit and, and the regular contributor uh, with his English Premier League Euro Soccer Report here in the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, we're going to break for commercial message. And we'll, on the other side, we're going to come back. We're going to wrap up Season 8, that bittersweet moment um, here in the GP Soccer Podcast. I'm Giovanni Puccini. Don't you dare go anywhere. We'll catch you on the other side. In the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, those who teach the game will find a wealth of coaching activities to improve, stimulate, and provide enjoyment for players of all ages and abilities. UEFA B licensed coach and Chelsea FC Player Development Center head coach Rob Ellis has drawn on more than 20 years of soccer coaching and physical education teaching experience to provide only those activities he has successfully used time and time again to engage and inspire his players. Each activity is graded from beginner to advanced, and they foster fresh and exciting ideas to coach the main techniques and tactics of soccer. The 252 coaching activities included in the Soccer Coaches Toolkit are also accompanied by an easy-to-understand description and diagram. The activities require only basic coaching equipment and can be adapted to challenge players of varying ability levels and needs. Soccer coaches at all levels of the game can use the activities to create one-off sessions for their players or use the activities to deliver regular sessions as part of a competitive training program. It is an ideal resource for both grassroots and elite youth coaches and will enhance both the players' and teams' development. The book is on sale worldwide and has scored a massive hit with professional coaches and players alike. Former Tottenham Hotspur youth coach John Rowan described the Soccer Coaches Toolkit as an astounding book. I consider it the Bible of soccer coaching. Head of Football Methodology at Monaco said of the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, it is a very useful book for coaches to widen their session database and provide variety in their coaching. Head of Soccer Development at Christ College Secondary School in London, Daniel Nielsen called the Soccer Coaches Toolkit a truly comprehensive library of drills and sessions for the whole spectrum of soccer techniques and tactics. In addition, the book has already been purchased and endorsed by former Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland defender Jody Craddock, as well as ex-Leicester City striker Trevor Benjamin and Sutton United defender Joe Kizzy. The Soccer Coaches Toolkit is the ticket to a lifetime of soccer coaching ideas, a must-book to include in your soccer coaching library. Hello, this is Eric Eisenhut, owner of the United Goalkeeping Alliance, and you are listening to Coach Giovanni Piccini a great coach and a much better friend, great guy on the GP Soccer Podcast. And welcome back, everyone, to the GP Soccer Podcast. Giovanni Piccini here. Uh, many thanks once again to my good friend Rob Ellis for coming back on board. And uh, 
he and I having a conversation about all, all the great things that took place over the course of season eight. Um, I want to take a moment in this final segment of season eight uh, to thank a few people. Um, you know, I, I had some great guests. I had some terrific guests I do each and every season. And I would want to just take this moment. And I hope my audience, you, my audience will, will bear with me. Um, and uh, as I say, thank you to uh, Paul Payne and Dylan Artebell, uh, Brad Card Cancer, Ralph Rigno, good friend of mine, former coach over at Tufts University, Richard Bucciarelli from the National Soccer Coaches Association of Canada, uh, Jared Scarpacci, great boy soccer coach over at Masconomic Regional High School, friend and colleague and author Tim Shum, Tom Shields, Skip Gilbert, CEO of USYS, Rob Ellis, who you know, Sterling Neighbors from down in Tennessee, and um, in particular, my great panel, uh, Dr. Bill Steppen, Stephen, Skip Gilbert, and uh, Mike Watella, uh, my panelists for the two-part series on violence in youth sports. Uh, so many thanks to all of those wonderful uh, folks who took the time to come on the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, each and every one of those interviews, each and every one of those conversations is well worth listening to. Uh, so if you've missed any, as you know by now, you can catch each and every one of the shows on Season 8 as well as, heck, Season 1 through Season 8. Um, of the GP Soccer Podcast wherever you download your podcast. I saved the best for last, and that is a heartfelt thank you to you, my listening audience, without whom there would be no GP Soccer Podcast. There would be no direct kick of my new show on WMEX. Um, if people don't listen, if people don't tune in, um, there's not much that can happen. Um, but the overwhelming response, the over overwhelming uh, positive comments and the support I get from uh, people I know and people I don't know out there in the soccer world uh, is deeply, deeply appreciated. Uh, it is arguably the driving force for me to coming into the studio uh, each and every time I come down to, to put together a show. I want to make sure that I, I, I do my listening audience a great service by providing good content, hopefully a bit entertaining, uh, so much so that you, that you tune in each and every week, and you do. You do in, in great numbers, and I, for which I am uh, very much appreciative. Very much appreciative. Um, we'll be getting back on board, as I told you, on September the 6th for Season 9 of the GP Soccer Podcast. Again, I will uh, encourage all of you out there, if you've got any suggestions for the new season, something that you like, something that you don't like, something you think it's worth my adding or considering, reach out to me, GP4Soccer, and that's the number four, at yahoo.com. And uh, I will read everything, look at everything, good, bad, and everything in the middle uh, to ensure that when, uh, you know, when you turn back on uh, uh, Season 9 on September the uh, 6th, uh, you'll get a, a, a new, updated, uh, fresh uh, approach to uh, the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, you know, there you have it. Uh, again, bittersweet. That, that's our show for today, and that's our show for the season. If you like what you heard, and I do hope that you have, please tell everyone. You can follow the GP Soccer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Linktree, and on my website, gpsoccerpodcast.com. And don't forget to tune into Direct Kick every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. on WMEX AM 1510 and streaming on WMEXBoston.com. This is your host, Giovanni Piccini, and I will catch you later. 